50 in St. Louis and the surrounding area, those listening online at kfu.org, or as a podcast. Do me a favor. Be sure to spread the word about our program to anyone you know who would benefit from a daily dose of God's Word. Well, we give thanks, as always, to God for our sponsor, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. They translate and publish biblical and catechetical material for people all over the world. Learn more about their great work at lhfmissions.org. While you're online checking them out, you know that I love to hear you, and I answer every email I receive. So send me your questions and comments to pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. Every Friday, I feature one of your letters or answer your questions at the top of the show. Well, in this episode, we begin a new book, the Epistle of St. James. And we'll be going chapter by chapter in James for the next five episodes. So it's going to be pretty short. We're starting today. We'll end next Monday. And then following it, we're going to be into Exodus for a few months. So this little, even the New Testament gives us a chance to dig into some practical wisdom from God. Because the epistle of St. James has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. Like Proverbs, James's letter is only loosely structured, and it's, it's a lot less like Paul's rhetorically organized letters, and it's more like a list of helpful instructions on Christian living. In this first chapter, the apostle wastes no time getting He talks about trials. Trials will strengthen your faith. He urges us to seek wisdom from God and to do good works in keeping with faith. Now, Martin Luther described the book of James as an epistle of straw. He, he wrote that in his introduction to the New Testament, and he, and he included that for a few years until eventually even he took it out because, well, the wrong idea was getting across. Did that mean that Luther thought that James should be removed from the Bible? Well, not so. The context, ar- the context around him saying that James was an epistle of straw was that when compared to the letters of Paul, which when even taken by themselves contains law and gospel instruction and points to Christ, you know, he said James, you know, doesn't really include Christ necessarily a gospel proclamation. You know, James has helpful tips for living, but it doesn't have everything you might get out of one of Paul's letters. So only when compared to the letters of Paul did he say that this is an epistle of straw. But he certainly thought it should be included in the book, because if he didn't, maybe he wouldn't have included it. Well, anyway, um, today, as we get into James, we'll be talking about some of the controversies around it, then, of course, digging into the things that the Holy Spirit teaches us through it. Joining me this morning to introduce us to James, the Apostle and the Epistle, is my guest, the Reverend Kevin Parvis, pastor of Congregation Shalom in St. Louis, Missouri. Pastor, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. How are you doing? I am doing wonderful. Uh, I just had... Uh, uh, trick-or-treaters at our house, and uh, I think we had about 75 at our house. I'm not sure where you're at, but do you have a lot of trick-or-treaters uh, where you're at? 
I always spend trick or treat, if you will, with my uh, grandchildren, and so I don't stay home, but I leave a bowl of candy out, and it's always there when I get back. So I'm gathering we don't have very many trick or treaters in our neighborhood. Oh no! Well, okay. Well, that's good. Did uh, what did your grandchildren? Did they dress up? What did they dress up uh, as? They, yeah, they were uh, all kinds of uh, strange and wonderful things. I, I have nine of them, so. I have a little. Oh bald, well, yeah. To go through all bald, of them would be a lot. I have a little bald uh, grandson uh, who dressed up like Charlie Brown. He was perfect. <laughs> oh yeah, that'd be cute. Oh, I love it. I love it. He has a, he has a big well, old to, bald head. He looks just like Charlie Brown. <laughs> <laughs> well, today, brother, we are starting a new book, and we're only going to be in this book for about a week, but. Today's the very first chapter, and I'm excited to have you along as we go through it. Uh, before we dig in, though, would you start us off in prayer? Sure. Abba Father, we thank and praise you that you have given us this new day and this glorious weather, at least here in St. Louis, and we pray that uh, all your saints are blessed by whatever gifts of nature that you pour out upon them. And we pray your blessing upon our gathering today and pray that your Holy Spirit would help illuminate this sometimes challenging epistle, uh, and help us to know what it is you desire us to know from it. In Jesus' name, B'Shem Yeshua, amen. Amen. Okay, so as I had mentioned in the introduction, James is a little disjointed in the way that it's presented. It's a very, no, it's not exactly like Proverbs, but it is in the sense where, you know, there aren't these long, complicated rhetorical arguments. He just says what he's inspired to say, and he goes through uh, point by point, really with not a lot of connection between the two. But the first chapter really is kind of connected to testing one's faith or the testing of one's faith. Um, so I think that the best way for us to handle this is for me just to read uh, the first uh, couple verses, and then we'll talk about who James is and what the date is. I'm going to read... Okay. Uh, Chapter 1, verses 1 through uh, through 4, just, just to get us. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we have here, just in the first little smidge of the text, we have both the author identifying himself as James, and he has his his uh, audience, which is the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Uh, tell us, who is James, and who is he writing to? Um, I, I would I would suggest that James is uh, Jesus's brother, um, if you will, his brother by Mary and Joseph after he was born. Um, I would argue that I mean most people date this book to about forty to fifty, but the in the greetings section, the twelve tribes in the dispersion is an interesting comment um, because. Some have said then that perhaps he's writing this, uh, and I don't think James lived this long, so I, I can't really abide by this, but it's almost a prophetic foreshadowing of the destruction of the temple. 
what are we going to do when whatever we have as Jewish people who believe in Jesus have nothing left to go on except what God is pouring out on us right now and how are we going to live our lives outside of the sort of the usual way in which we continue to live as people who who live in the shadow of the temple with the systems that are going on uh, all all the time you know we see it in uh, in acts we see that the church is is having services every you know, on the first day of the week to celebrate the resurrection and yet also continuing in the synagogal cycle and probably in the feast cycle and the things like that and it seems like this little note to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, um, two things. Either he's, he's writing to uh, Jewish people who have been dispersed, and certainly they had been prior to this, but they have been gathered back together in Israel. Certainly not all the tribes, but the, the tribes that are gathered there. But I also would argue that if he, if, if he is complementary to Paul— and Paul is writing to Gentiles who have been grafted in and therefore receive all the blessings of the root of Abraham and therefore become children of God and Israel, then to them as well all over the world. And so it's, it's a convoluted, as you said, it's, it's uh, I think someone once, I think maybe you said this in your, in your intro, this is kind of the Proverbs, uh, Proverbs style of writing, and it's, it's essentially how do we live now going forward, being away from what is is thought to be the center of Jewish life and faith in Jerusalem, because the dispersion um, implies that. How do we live our lives uh, by the Holy Spirit to to do the things that God calls us to do? And so it's it's a it's it's kind of a challenging. Just those four verses are challenging to me. Right, and and I think that's why I wanted to start with them because you know the early dating of James makes sense, but we that's the two things being uh, questioned here at the very start: who is James, and when was it written? And just mm-hmm. beginning with the second question: when was it written? Um, it sounded like you argued for an early date, and I would too, or early mid forties, something like that, uh, because while it does say to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, could that be predicting the destruction of the temple in seventy A.D.? You know, possible course, as you already pointed out, Jewish believers had been scattered outside their home due to all sorts of persecutions that had been in Jerusalem. Uh, Acts eleven nineteen specifically says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephan traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Uh, so we see that they go really far outside of their homeland. They are certainly dispersed, and, and not all of them, even as things lighten up, are going to return. They, they settle down roots. So there are people, Jewish believers out there, who need to hear the message. And he doesn't throughout the letter, talk about the assimilation of the Gentiles in any way, which is a very key issue for Paul. The circumcision of believers being necessary in that controversy, James doesn't mention it at all, so maybe that hadn't even come up yet. And as we learn from the second chapter, the Christians, as as you pointed out, are still meeting in synagogues, and so that's pretty early on. Um, Even that the 
leaders in the church are called teachers and elders, as we'll see in chapters 3 and 5, rather than, say, bush bishops and deacons, suggests that it's pretty early in the church's development. So that early uh, dating makes a lot of sense from you know the internal evidence from the text. But then James, you know, you said, James, I believe, is a brother of Jesus, uh, born to Mary and Joseph after, of course, Christ had been born. And that is certainly an opinion that many have. Um, the, our Roman Catholic friends who hold that Mary was perpetually a virgin, and those Lutherans who hold that too, might suggest that James here is either a different James, uh, probably not, or he's a brother by means of Joseph's previous family or by means of being just a close relative or something like that. Right. Um, right. We do, yeah, we do have some internal evidence otherwise, though. What do you think about some of those arguments? I mean, again, we can speculate all we want, and the texts are not clear, and the only way we can really know truth, I mean, you know, yesterday or the day before was Reformation Sunday. If you know the the word, you will know the truth. And so the word isn't clear, and those are things that apparently God has chosen not to make clear to us for a reason. How important are they? The, the importance, of course, is the, the content. But it's good, you know, it's good to speculate, and it's good to think about who might be writing this, therefore, because you get a context for the content. Um you know, we have in our in our community we have uh, a church here. It's a Catholic church called Saint James the Greater, and of course there is a James the Greater and a James the Lesser. Uh, James, uh, it, so who who could have written this? I couldn't tell you, but I I always tend because of just the familial way that James talks that he is the brother of Jesus, uh, but I, I can't comment on on whether or not i'm not going to die on that hill let's put it that way oh sure yeah there are four jameses mentioned in the bible so yeah. we talk about and yeah. james is not exactly a uh, uncommon name sort of like joseph or joshua um so yeah yeah no absolutely but it's certainly worth addressing um if for no other reason that people who are out online or they're encountering people they know or they have catholic friends um they, they are being confronted with these questions, and so it's helpful for us to at least address them instead of just sort sure. of punting because, you know, they, they, people's, people's faith is often challenged when they are accosted by the idea that perhaps we don't even know who wrote this book, and yet we consider it part of Holy Scripture. And, and James's well, history in the canon is also a little dubious too, because you don't see it in some of the early lists by some of like you know Eusebius and others. Um, so it's it's been a book that's been um, has an asterisk by it for quite a while now. Anyway, well, sure. And in, in you know in theology, we have the prolegomena versus antilegomena argument about uh, canonized scripture, and that's probably why this has the asterisk because. Like Hebrews, the author is undetermined. And so, you know, not knowing exactly who wrote it, we say, well, it's useful for teaching and gathering around, but we're not going to create doctrine over this, right? And so, uh, you know, that we have to make those distinctions as well when we talk about canon. And for those of you listening, prolegomena is this idea that some books were universally attested to, 
uh, throughout Christendom as the canon or the list of which books are um, from in Scripture was being uh, organically developed. And then antilegomena just means that there are some people who didn't have that book in use in their Christian community. And so when it came time to say, well, this book is definitely a part of the Christian scripture, you know, they just have to sort of note that some people uh, are speaking against it or some people aren't um, familiar with it. So, you know, it doesn't have the same the same uh, test testimony as, say, something like Romans might have. Right. Well, anyway, so, so. yeah, we don't have to. Oh, as you say, we don't have to dwell on that, but I definitely wanted to bring it up because that's a key thing with James. Yeah, and we and we, the key to that distinction is, at least historically, the church would not base church doctrine upon uh, uh, upon texts that were were not universally accepted, and so you know those 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 texts would be brought along to support established doctrine from church from books that were universally accepted. Which is part of uh, Martin Luther's frustration, and and part of the reason why he uh, didn't really like James that much is because not only of its spoken against status, but also his opponents were relying on it quite heavily, and and they were essentially, if we really look at their arguments, they were taking James out of context. They were taking James as if Paul didn't exist, as if Romans hadn't been written, and of course, when we right. read James and we read some of the uh, challenging, sometimes uh, apparently contradictory statements, then we have to understand it in the full context of Scripture. And that's not what was happening. They were beating him over the head with out-of-context verses, which uh, happens a lot today, too. Uh, anything sure. else you want to lay down in terms of uh, background, though, before we continue into the into the verses? I just think it's, it's important, and I'm you know, preparing for All Saints Sunday, looking at the Beatitudes uh, next week. Um, it's important to realize that James makes an assumption here that I think the church needs to embrace, as Jesus makes that assumption as well, that we are by faith going to meet trials of all and various kinds. Our faith is going to be tested. We will, as, as the Beatitudes attest, be persecuted for our faith, and certainly the early church has done that, and uh, we are persecuted today. And so so the context that James is giving us is when, not if you meet persecution or if you meet challenges and testing, but when you do, this, this is, and, and of course the assumption here is uh, that this is to believers who've already been uh, brought into the covenant with God by faith through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And there's, therefore this, is, and one of the challenges is this is kind of third use of the law language. It's, it's sanctification language. Now I need to go ahead and get rid of that phone. J James is writing to uh, Christians who have already been re redeemed and saved by Christ, and so we are not talking, whenever we read James, about how to become saved or how one is justified right. before God. So he'll right. speak of the law and he'll speak of works, but he'll speak about them in ways that, as you say, is very third use. For those at yeah. home that may or may not remember, right? First use is the is the curb. You know, it's the use of the Holy Spirit's use of the law that keeps society on track, right? The law written on our hearts. The second use is the mirror. It's the use that I think we encounter the most. It's where we look into God's law and we are accused of our sins. Lex semper accusa. The law always accuses, really, in any 
and we look into the mirror of the law and we see that we need a savior. And the third use is as a guide or map, if you remember from confirmation days, and that is we now as Christians, redeemed in Christ and forgiven, look at how are we supposed to live? How does God want us to live? And though we can't do it perfectly, the law is there to us. And so, yeah, and he says, you know, count it all joy, my brother. I think of First Peter, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy, joy, rejoicing, um, uh, supreme joy, all joy, the, the most joy. Now, joy and happiness are different things. Saying that you should just put a smile on your face and be happy when you encounter trials, he's saying something else, isn't he, brother? Yeah, in fact, I just had this discussion with my wife, and I was interested that we disagreed on that because I said happiness was transient and joy was it was inner and and you know joy didn't always make didn't always reflect itself as always being in a good mood um and she thought it was right. just exactly the other way around but um but i, oh. I think joy is, is a state of being and happiness is something that's illusory and then it, and it comes and goes yeah, happiness or pleasure is a is a feeling. You know, it's it's really the way I would describe it even more more you know poignantly is that happiness is a result of chemical processes in your brain that make you feel a certain way. And joy is as you say a condition. It's it's more of an intellectual property and an emotional property. Joy is recognizing that even in the midst of things that are bad that there will be again <laughs> good times. There will be right. again yeah. uh, times for happiness. And in this case, right. as they're being persecuted for their faith, their faith will result in, resort, uh, result in eternal salvation. Right. And joy is one of those things that is uh, a, a fruit of hope and trust in God's great provision and His, in his hand. And also, I think Absolutely. it's important. And that's what we as, see. I think it's important as we look at this text, uh, especially in light of, as we said, third use of the law, the whole faith without works is dead controversy that you'll get to another day. Um, we need, I think it's a good idea to read James through the lens of Paul. And one of our Lutheran favorite verses, of course, is Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We always stop at 9, but I think 10 is as, as important. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one but may boast. But we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So works are not something that we should not seek to do. God has created us for that and has prepared us for the works that he has planned for us. So we have James here, and he's going to be making that point throughout his book. And he begins because he's writing to those who have been dispersed, to those who are perhaps disconnected, scattered outside of Israel, um, scattered outside a community that can support them. They're going to face various types of trials, and he wants them to have joy because of the, you know the end is determined. 
And he reminds them that this testing of their faith will produce steadfastness. Uh, so he gets right into the very next part, though, and he, he gives them a hint on where that, uh, where that faith and that joy can be found. Verses uh, 5 uh, and following. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, stable in all his ways." That's through verse 8, so another little chunk of wisdom. It's connected to trials, right, because we need the wisdom of God to persevere. But he says some things about doubting there, which is a little uncomfortable. What do you think, brother? I mean, doesn't this sound like do not be blown about by every wind of doctrine, right? Uh, I mean, here he is complimenting Paul again. So, you know, the reality is that we, especially today, I mean, there's so much nonsense being spouted in the world. And the church is, in many ways, the visible church is being blown about by all these things because they seek rather than to please God, but to please culture. And and it causes us to be double-minded. And uh, and it causes it causes you know hurt in the church. Obviously, the visible church, the invisible church, is not double-minded at all. But uh, yeah, that's that's a challenge that we have to uh, to live through and and continue to proclaim truth even in the midst of and yes, do it gently and with respect, as Saint Peter will tell us. But but to do so and to stand firm on the truth without doubt. It's that without doubt that I think is troublesome because plenty yeah. of people, even the most faithful Christians, will have bouts of doubt. And in these um, doubtful bouts, they will, uh, yeah, they, they struggle with it. And so if you were to read something like James or even Jesus's words in Matthew when he says, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only be able to do what's been done to the fig tree, but, you know, throw the mountain into the sea. Yeah, I've tried that many you know, yeah. yeah, right? I mean, I, you know, I, I, I was talking to someone, I don't think it was you, but they said as a kid, they really thought that they could do this. They heard this from Jesus, they read it in the Bible, so they're out there trying to uproot mountains and trees, and, and right. it, it doesn't work. So we yeah. do have figurative language here, but in a world that encourages us, out, it becomes very complicated. And what I mean by that is that um, today, to be certain, to be sure, to be um, um, confirmed in your belief is not a virtue or a trait that the world looks upon kindly. You're supposed to understand that everyone has supposed to uh, not be so arrogant as to believe that only you are correct. You're, it's this uh, postmodernism which says that you know there from person to person, and that appealing to authority such as the Bible or to even God is inappropriate because someone else may disagree with you. So I think as someone um, of my generation, growing up, always having to be concerned that, well, I don't want to assert myself too much because it might be offensive to someone who disagrees with me. You know, the Bible doesn't speak that way. You know, Jesus doesn't speak that way. James here doesn't speak that way. 
Uh, and Paul, as you mentioned, doesn't speak that way, right? Be without doubting, a uh, full of faith. As faith, uh, the 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 persistent widow uh, did not doubt. She was she continued to ask in faith. So we we see that as contrary to the world. And so when we say things like, "Well, uh, Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven," the world, you know, trademark says uh, that's offensive. That's offensive. Right. Uh, you know, I, I think that's a struggle that a lot of people are growing up with, uh, my age and younger. And when and when that beats on us like those waves, uh, we you know, and then we do doubt in an all-knowing and all-providing and all 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 loving God. That share that shows a lack of wisdom. And so, what does James say when we have a lack of wisdom? Instead of going to culture or going to self, we go to God. And we ask him for the for the wisdom that 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 removes our doubt, and he will graciously give it to us. Let him ask who gives generously to all without reproach. That's the message. Okay, well, it is time for a break. So when we come back, Pastor Parvitz and I will continue our discussion of James. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and this is Thy Strong Word. With me today is the Reverend Kevin Parvitz, pastor of Congregation Kaiva Shalom in St. Louis, Missouri. All right, Pastor, before we uh, rushed into break, we were talking about you know seeking wisdom from God and the sea of doubt that drives and tosses us to and fro by the wind uh, in this world of ours and how much we need to be closer and closer to God. This is also why it's very important that we be a part of a faith congregation, somewhere where believers meet. You know, these Christians, uh, presumably because he talks about the dispersion, may have been meeting together un undoubtedly the best they could, but they still were disconnected from some of the, the larger churches or the larger gatherings of Christians. You're probably the last to get some of the uh, the the word passed down from the apostles, and so you know we too in this day and age when we have such access to community, it is there where we can you know receive God's gifts and word and sacrament, but also the encouragement of fellow Christians, and I think that helps too when we're faced with this world. Mm -hmm. And and the community of faith is a. Uh... Uh, a huge gift of the Lord to us to be able to stand with. And and when that community of faith 
And this is one of the things that I find so difficult to believe when, when that community of faith starts to accommodate culture, what are we then to do? And, uh, you know, and, and in some ways we have, we have to separate ourselves and find a community of faith that is faithful to the scriptures. And that's, that's a challenge, I think, because people like their comfort zones and like their, um, you know, their, their traditions. Yeah, being comfortable is certainly not something that the Bible promises that we'll ever be, and yet that's what we seek after all the time. Uh, let me yeah. add some more verses to the conversation. This is just going to be a couple. This is verses 9, 10, and 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. When I hear language like this from the scriptures, Pastor, I'm thinking that this congregation or the people that he's writing to in general probably suffered from poverty and were being oppressed by those who are wealthy. And he, I suppose he's reminding them that things even out over time. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if, if James is the brother of Jesus, then he traveled with Jesus as well. And, you know, there was a whole family there around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, you know, the, the apostle James and John were cousins. Um, but you could hear Jesus talking about, you know, when you come into the wedding feast, sit in the place of, of least honor and you will be exalted. You will be asked to come forward. And that's this language here that James is, is reflecting. And, it, and it, I think this must have been especially in because you had the spiritual elite in Jerusalem with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes and all that went with that. And then you had these people who flocked because they were so needy and and uh, and come to faith and yet their need doesn't end you know it's not there's no prosperity gospel in Jesus their need doesn't end and yet there is this hope that they will they will be repaid that's again what the beatitudes are all about right you know it's all about perspective don't evaluate yourself by the world's standards you know those who are poor Right? You have a, a high position in Christ. And if you're rich, then remember that you're nothing uh, but a human being, destined to die, whose only hope is in Jesus. Yeah. Now, in these next verses, as we keep on adding text, he makes a distinction that he's been talking about trials. But what about temptations? Is there a difference? Let's hear what he has to say. Verses 12 through 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Temptation and testing. People often confuse the two. Yeah. I always hear, you know, that the, whenever I say God does not tempt, then everybody always says, well, he tempted Abraham when he told Abraham to sacrifice his son. 
there's a difference between temptation and testing. Uh, all, uh, and, and uh, you know, we have to recognize that as well. What it is is a little less solid. Um, I, when God tests us um, and he allows us to be tested, um, what is the function of that testing? And then what is the function of the temptation that the devil gives us? Because God doesn't tempt us in that way. Temptation lose ultimately perhaps, unfortunately, to a loss of faith and trust in God, and testing leads ultimately to a strengthened trust and faith in God. Yeah, God is not going to tempt you to sin, and that's sort of what it boils down to. You know, even in the case of Abraham, one might say, well, the sin is murder, the fifth commandment. Yeah, but there's yeah. a there's a pretty complicated distinction in the sacrificial system and the understanding of the day. But when we talk about it today, and and you know, when James is talking about Christians in the modern sense, you know, Christians from the church age forward, you know, there's a lot of temptation, <laughs> no, no pun intended, for us to think, well, every time you know the world, my sinful nature, or the devil presents with me to me a situation where I could give into it. Oh, that's that's God making sure that I'm still that I'm still faithful. Well, right, even yeah. it doesn't make sense because first of all, God knows you better than you know yourself. So even when he tests our faith, it's not as though God is in his throne looking down saying, "Hmm, I wonder if Phil Boo believes in me. I think I'm going to throw him a temptation." Even in those cases, uh t- or testing even, test testing isn't for the purposes of God finding out something. He knows all things. Testing is for the purposes of strengthening our faith, which is what Paul is—I mean, sorry, uh, James here is made very clear. You know, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, because these trials often are tests. Yeah, and try, and you know, I don't know about you. I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a, I suppose, a fairly academic kind of person. I always like tests. But most people don't really like tests. Tests make them uncomfortable, and tests are sometimes hard to get through. Uh, but those tests reap results, and uh, that's the, the same as the spiritual tests that God gives us. They may not be comfortable, but when we go through them, they reap results. Exactly, exactly. Uh, let's add some more verses, 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. There is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So James drawing on... Um, Really, uh, the, the Holy Spirit's inspiring him to draw on a lot of teachings that we've heard from Jesus and from the Old Testament in this little passage. Uh, but we have him ending the previous section with this idea of of desire conceiving and giving birth to sin and sin growing into death, which is, uh, aside from its negative character, the beautiful description of something horrible. And then he goes right in, but, 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 but. There are good gifts and perfect gifts, and these aren't uh, from the world. These are from God. Temptation isn't from God. These things are from God, and God is unchanging. Um, very law gospel for James. 
Yeah, and it's, I, I'm always interested in the, and maybe it's unintended, but I don't think so, this allusion to the Garden of Eden that James is making here in both of these, the whole business of temptation giving birth to sin. That's what, and 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 Eve was tempted by her own desire to know God and to be God um, as the devil tempted her. Uh, and and sin, sin was given birth to, but then, and I was interested, I, does your translation say first fruits of his creatures or creation? Uh, ESV has creatures. Really? Mine has creation, which I think is an interesting, an interesting difference. And I have the ESV as well. I, I probably have the early version before it was uh, edited, I suppose. But um, yeah, uh, I'll, all of creation is broken in sin, including those that are not necessarily what we would think of as creatures. You know, the the earth uh, groans and the earthquakes and all this. But yet we, through through this Father of Light who gives us every good gift, become the firstborn of of the sort of the image of what God plans for us in the Parousia. Right, right, and we we have this we have this absolutely being poured forth here, connected to even Paul's text in Romans when he talks about um, you know sin coming through one man. It's not as poetic, I suppose. Um, so, also you you've got a little bit on first fruits of his creatures. I uh, looked at the Hebrew there. Um, yeah, I think it I think it should be creation, but anyway, yeah. that's just me. Nobody asked me. <laughs> right. We're not uh, I, I didn't know that there were differences in ESVs. I'll be honest. So I'm, I'm going to yeah. now have a little rabbit hole after the show to go into. I have a really early edition of the ESV, and I find some interesting differences in later editions. Yeah. Well, we have a few more verses in our text, and it's some pretty important ones. I think it's worth making sure that we get to them. So, Pastor Harvey, mm-hmm. let's do that now, uh, starting with 19... And I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. This, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. All right, hearing and doing the word and differences between uh, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I struggle with those, other, but uh, this is the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. This throws a I think, and the idea of um, uh, what do we, what, what do sometimes people call it, you know, righteous indignation. 
angry mm-hmm. and upset, but it's for good reasons. And they might point to Jesus as an example, but they're not Jesus. So what do you think about this passage? I mean, I struggle with this because, of course, the psalmist uh, allows us the ability to be anger because God knows that we are anger. But the psalmist says, in your anger, do not sin, right? Anger can lead to sin. Anger can be is simply an emotion that we have to deal with. Um, and, and we should be slow. You know, I always, whenever I get really annoyed by somebody or something, I always, I, I don't always, I have to confess, I I like to think that I take a beat and pray and calm down before I say anything, because if I say anything immediately, it will always be stupid. Um, and I'm I'm really <laughs> amazed at James's forthrightness here, because again, who's he writing to but saved children of God, and yet he says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. The world is going to give us filthiness and, and, and rampant wickedness. We go back to his word to receive that meekness that Jesus again says, I guess I'm obsessed with the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the world, the earth. Um, you know, that, that is, what do we, it's again, it goes all the way back to the beginning again, when we uh, are tested and, and find ourselves to have no wisdom. Uh, how do we, do we do, then do we go ahead and act without wisdom, which is everything else, or do we seek God for the wisdom that he can give us generously? You know, that's, the whole thing is a really nice, uh, a, a nice, you know, a nice bookend. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And, and and this meekness is important, but also is the term implanted word. You know, yeah. this is this is beyond word. just you know the the scriptures, which are important. Certainly, God's revealed word to us. But this is also the word which was implanted in you. When I see this word, when I see this phrase, implanted word, which he then describes as which is able to save your souls. I'm thinking a little less about, say, Bible study and more about the fact that God has bestowed upon you faith, declared you righteous, and then naturally gives you faith in his word because of it. And those, all those things together is what strengthens us. Also more evidence that James is speaking to, obviously, people who have already become Christian. Sure. And interesting that you say that because that's a nice transition to the next section because— when all we do is look from without ourselves to something, even like the scriptures themselves, which, you know, everybody can read the scriptures and take them out of context and make up any kind of crazy doctrine that they want out of them. Clearly, the denominations and the differences bear testament to that. But the implanted word is a matter of taking a beat and dwelling on what is inside of us. Uh, and I love this verse here that James gives us about the one who just intently looks at his natural face in the mirror. Uh, and, and you know, if all we do is look at what we can see instead of dwelling on what God has given us that we cannot necessarily see, then we will not be doers of the Word. We'll just look and see and be, be influenced by whatever our natural eyes see. Right, and and everything we do, as he's making very clear here, needs to be grounded in what God would have us do, uh-huh. and that's also where that confidence of faith comes from. 
So if you're a Christian and you're not, you know, reading the word, you're not, you're not, I mean, if you're listening to thy strong word, you're probably pretty interested in the word, but there are so many out there who are not in the word themselves, or they're not in a faith community where the word is preached and taught and proclaimed. Um, then, then you are not internalizing God is not implanting in you the tools you need to overcome the challenges of this world. Another reason why the faith community is so important. And another reason why James is speaking to these people who may not be in a stable faith community, uh, encouraging them all the more to be not just hearers, but doers of the word. Yeah, I mean, it's important to keep this in context. If we go with the earlier writings, say mid-40s, we're talking only about... uh, Ten years after the 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 Pentecost, when when the Holy Spirit came upon all of those, and they went back to their homes and started new churches. Yeah, that's hard to even imagine. I mean, we think of Paul's letters, or a little later, we think of some of the Old Testament, the New Testament writings being as late as the '90s, and so yeah, this is like a decade. I mean, people would have remembered that that event mm-hmm. happening and it's just so Absolutely. amazing. Yeah. In this day and in this day and age we have this I guess it's starting to fade a little bit, but among those who don't believe and even among those who do, there's this idea of, you know, religion being worthless in general. And yeah. even among believers, I've seen things like Jesus is greater than religion. Jesus is better than religion. And so religion has received among believers and unbelievers alike a negative connotation, a bad definition. Um, James here defines religion and gives it to us in a way that doesn't say avoid having a religion. He just says, make sure your religion is pure and undefiled. And he gives us an example of what that looks like. Yeah, and, and interesting, because of course, orphans and widows are were a particular concern for everyone in first century Judea. Uh, those are the ones who had no representation. They were basically without a husband or without a parent, left to the the perils of the world. And so that I think those two, it's not necessarily for us orphans and widows because that's not necessarily the case anymore. But it's you know visit those who who are at the at the expense of the world and who have no. Uh, nothing to hold on to, no grounding. Um, widows and orphans in the 21st century, what does that mean? I mean, I think we can certainly visit widows and orphans, but I think it it is important for us to remember that there are lots of people, including our brothers and sisters in Christ, who are struggling with addictions and who are struggling and who have no real grounding, and their faith is clearly in danger. I'm always frustrated by the, for example, the LCMS website, because it shows church after church after church that has membership and attendance fully 50% different. So those who are not attending regularly the Word of God, are they becoming ungrounded, and shouldn't we be visiting those people? Because they're breaking the third commandment, right? Right. Well, it's certainly widows and orphans are more uh, broadly defined today. They're they're sort of a uh, just a representative of the whole. Right? Every everyone who's in a position of a widow and orphan today would be like widows and orphans. Those who have been disenfranchised from society, those who have uh, 
who don't have any any power to even help themselves. Um, so even with this idea of, well, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, which is right. not a healthy idea, personally, in my opinion, but but right. even they couldn't do that if they tried. So there are so many that need the church. And so pure religion are these two things. One is to visit widows and orphans in their affliction, which is broader than just widows and orphans. And then that second part, to oneself unstained from the world. You know, religion yeah. that is pure and undefiled, to keep oneself unstained from the world. We can only do that perfectly whenever Christ comes to redeem the world. But before then, we rely on that implanted word to not be of the world, be in it, but not of it. And I think mm. that's what's so tough. If, if, if we want to keep ourselves unstained from the world from an individual point of view, it means a lot of sacrifices. It means not participating in some things that everybody you know is participating in. And then as congregations and as a community to keep ourselves unstained from the world means that when someone enters our worship, it should look different than the rest of the world. And not just superficially, but it should be different because it is not something that's been influenced by, you know, whatever trends and other things are of the day, but it points to Christ. Yeah. So we have just a few minutes left, brother, in our program, and I want to give those few minutes to you. It's just a couple of minutes. Uh, just a word of gospel for the listeners at home before we end today. Well, I just, I just, I think that James is writing to people who are saved by Christ through faith, uh, by grace, and and yet struggling with the realities that we struggle with today, and and the 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 assurance here, of course, is that God, when we go to Him, He gives graciously and He gives generously to all who ask. And so, when we sin, we go to God for forgiveness, and He pours that forgiveness out on us. And when we struggle, we go to God for wisdom, and He gives us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the the the, the things we need in order to survive the testing and even to overcome the temptation that the evil one gives us. So, uh, you know, again, when you see, when you when you look in the the mirror and you see a lack of wisdom, go to God and get it. And when you don't. Uh, when you don't see wisdom, you're in the Word, the implanted Word that is uh, uh, filling your heart. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Kevin Parviz, pastor of Congregation Kaiva Shalom in St. Louis, Missouri. And thank you too, dear listener, for tuning in to Thy Strong Word. I've been your host, Pastor Phil Boo. Tomorrow, we are taking the scroll and unrolling it to the second chapter of James, and I'll be joined by the Reverend Jim Gabriel as we ask the question, are good, words good works required? Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word.